Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are just disillusioned. Should you wish to contact us, our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz and biz is spelled B-I-Z. And please also check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity. Today's guest on Off Grid Christianity is a former evangelical pastor from Bakersfield, California. He's also been an entertainment developer and a businessman. Our guest is also a co-author of the book A Language of Healing for a Polarised Nation and is well known for his podcasts A Christian and a Muslim Walk into a Studio. He likes to spend most of his time with the poor, the LGBTQ community, Muslims and others who are often marginalised. But what does it mean into the 21st century to be marginalised? Is it time for us to take a stand and speak up for those who are oppressed? And what is a former pastor doing now? And what is an entertainment developer? So many questions, so little time. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity, Bob Prater. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for your patience with all the technical issues we've been having tonight. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, Martin, wait a minute, man. Most of those technical issues were mine. So, I mean, let's at least be genuine. Those were my issues. <laughs> yes, but I want to be more humble than you. So it was. Well, you're going to have a higher place in heaven, apparently. Good for you, Martin. Good for you. We're off to a rousing start, aren't we? <laughs> I can hear all of you complaining already. Oh, I don't think that's quite true. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It was a joke. <laughs> it was a joke. Yes. Thank you, Bob. Right. right before... <laughs> before we have any more controversy or controversy, depending what side of the fence you're on on that one. Five important mm. questions to ask you, sir. So if you're sitting comfortably, let's begin. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? This was difficult because all of history, and I'm going to choose somebody that is still alive. That's fine. And mostly because I want to save my other for the end in the two-minute hero that you do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I'm thinking ahead here, Martin. I would love to sit down with Bono from U2. Oh, good call. That's what I'm saying. Of course it's a good call. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. For me, someone who has a prophetic voice on the earth, a legitimate prophetic voice, a heart of compassion, mm-hmm. and yet they were writing at such a brilliant level when they were young. I don't know how that works with Bono. I don't know how it worked with Paul McCartney or John Lennon or Bob Dylan. I don't know Joni Mitchell. I don't know where these come from when someone is so young, because here I am in my late 60s, and some of those concepts are just now becoming real for me. Mm. So, great Bono, yes. Oh, I would love to sit with him. Oh, my goodness. Well, I've always had this ambition ever since I was in radio, and first time I saw... Bono and Co. was on their October tour, was that 1981? Something like that, about 1,200 people in Bristol. I've always had this thing that I'd love to interview him. I'm assuming he's got a wine cellar, so it'd be great to go down to his wine cellar. And, you know, sort of, <laughs> oh, I'd have that 399 bottle there. You know, try it. And if you do meet him... Oh, listen to me. I plan on meeting him someday. Yeah. I, and I'm not even joking about that. I, I have this feeling something's coming, but I always get those feelings. Somebody... On a previous podcast, I think it's if you go back to John Thompson, episode four or five, he chose Bono as well. And he always wanted to meet him. And he was given an opportunity to do it. It went horribly wrong. Yeah. Check out the episode. It'll tell you. (laughs) Episode four. I'm on it. Yeah. It'll explain how he could have met Bono and co. And he didn't. Question two. Who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable? Please, sir. Okay, this is an easy one for me. It's Luke chapter 10, and you've got teachers of the law, a teacher who is a bit of an expert in the law, trying to trip Jesus up. And he says, how do I make sure that I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think it is? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've said rightly. And Then the guy, just to trip him up again, says, by the way, who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer it. He goes straight into the story of the Good Samaritan. Yes. You mentioned that I do an occasional podcast called A Christian and a Muslim Walk Into a Studio. To me, Muslims today are an equivalent 
to Samaritans of yesterday. As I sit with the marginalized, as I sit with the broken, that story resonates with me Mm. because my Muslim friend who I'm having breakfast with on Monday is one of those who would cross the street for me. He would give me the shirt off his back. I read that story with a different eye today. Who is my neighbor? Well, (laughs) your neighbor is someone you might see as your enemy or someone you reviled. So that's the one for me, hands down. Great answer. Thank you. Question three, you can either be prime minister of the UK or president of the USA or another country. If you okay. Could be, so what are you going to go for, first of all? Well, I, I, I guess I'll be president, although I was born in the UK, uh, but I'll be president and I get to change the law, right? You can do whatever you want. You could change the law or impose a new law. Obviously, the fact you were born in the UK might have some problems with you becoming the president of the USA, but never mind. We can work around that. What are you going to do? I am the father of a woman who was sexually abused as a child. And because of that, and it's something as I sit with people, and I sit with people almost every day, Martin, I hear their stories. And we have this thing over here called a statute of limitations Mm -hmm. that, especially in sexual abuse cases where people don't even, they're not even, even able to face it until they're older, that time has run out and there's nothing they can do. And so people just get by with stuff for years and years and years. I would remove every statute of limitation on sexual cases, sexual crimes. So there's my answer. Wow. Could we talk a bit more about that? Of course. Sure. How is your daughter now? She's doing well. She's she's now married, has uh, four four wonderful children. She lives in a state called West Virginia. And uh, I love her more than my own life. But the roads that she went down were just as dark as anyone can imagine. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, my heart, my heart is for those who have been forgotten, who have been marginalized. And in her case, who have been abused. Yeah. It's part of my story. And it goes back. I mean, I got stuff in my own background. So my heart is always tender and open towards those who have stories to tell that way. Yeah. You never know. There might be people listening today who are actually going through this. Uh, Sure. If we could just talk about from your your, your daughter's perspective first, because I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. As I said right at the very beginning, be interested to see where we go. Sure. Um, what facilities were there available for your daughter at the time when all this was happening? Who could she go and tell and everything else? Yeah, there was, it, we didn't, it, it happened when she was very young from the ages of six to eight. It happened at a church um, that we were part of and a youth worker was hitting on, doing stuff to kids. We'd go on a Wednesday night or a Sunday evening or whatever. And these things were happening she didn't tell us until she was 14. And uh, when I found out, there were some real mistakes made by me, by me. It was the son of one of my dearest friends on the planet. I called him. He begged me not to turn his son in. Uh, his son has passed away now, uh, as is he. But I sat with the son, and he just put his head down. And he said, I always knew this day was coming. He didn't deny it. I said, were there others? And he said, more than I can remember. More than I can remember. So my daughter, when she finally got her feet under her and figured out which direction, and trust me, dealing with a denomination Mm -hmm. in the midst of sexual abuse is an insane reality, Martin. An insane reality. And there are so many people that are more invested in the institution than they are in the lives that the institution is supposed to serve. Yes. And so they circled the wagons on us. There were accusations made against me, accusations made against my daughter uh, when this all came out. But eventually, there was a lawsuit that she brought, and they, they finally paid her a little bit of money to just go away, to just go away. It still continues. I've got another young person that I'm dealing with right now, same denomination, 
that has gone down some roads and she's trying to figure some stuff out. But it's endemic and it's epidemic in every denomination on this earth. There are always going to be people who are going to abuse the power that they have and the trust that they're able to curate. And that's what happened with my daughter. I am grateful that she is, I mean, she is head and shoulders above where she used to be. This waylaid her for a long time in life. And she's now gotten on top of that. But my heart is always soft towards those who have been down roads. When you first heard, and we will come back again if that's all right and look at it again from your uh, your daughter's perspective. When you first heard, what did you actually want to go and do about it? I wanted to kill somebody. Hmm. I wanted to kill somebody. The interesting thing is, the night before she told us, my wife and I had the same dream. We had the same dream. I mean... You want to talk about who God is yeah, yeah. and and the, the sovereignty of God on this earth and the intentionality, how he works with us individually. We had the same dream. And it was that our daughter, this one, we have three daughters, but this was our youngest. And she was in distress in both of our dreams in a similar way. The very next day we came home from going somewhere and our daughter was sitting there with her sisters and they said, Mom and Dad, you need to come in here. We need to talk to you. And she spilled the beans. But, oh, my gosh, I wanted to kill this this young man. Kill. I didn't. And justice was still served. I mean, I can't. Here's the thing, Martin. Even those who abuse have backstories. Yeah, yeah. We all come from somewhere. Yeah. So it's difficult for me these days to carry anger because everybody's got a story. Everybody, it does, it's not an excuse, but it at least illuminates why people do what they do. Something you just alluded to there regarding dreams. It's amazing how often God speaks to us in dreams and yet we ignore it. <laughs> okay, let, let me tell you. When I first met my friend Ahmad Mirza, who was one of he was the only practicing emir in Islam in the United States, the only practicing emir. He was the legal and spiritual head of this region of the country. Yeah. I interviewed him for a newspaper thing. It was a contentious interview. But after it was over, I said something that made him laugh. And so I stepped in. I said, you ought to give me your phone number. Let me buy you breakfast. And he narrowed his gaze at me and he said, why in the world would I want to do that after what just happened? And I just smiled and said, because you should. So he gave me his number. Two weeks later, we're sitting at a restaurant. He wanted to talk about religion. I passed that off. I said, not interested. We're, we're not going to change each other's minds. How about you tell me your story? And so he told me his story, how he came here at five years old from Kuwait his father was the head of the Ministry of Trade in Kuwait. Wow. Yeah, a very influential man who, and in the midst of all that, he told me, by the way, my wife's a teacher. Well, guess what? So is mine. And she's got stage four cancer. And I said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And he said, oh, it's okay. We're figuring our way out. And then as we're leaving, he said, Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation. Can we meet again next week? And I said, well, of course. And he said, do you want to just make it a regular Thursday? And I said, oh, yes. So the next week, I'm getting ready to meet with him. And I remember a dream. Huh. The night before meeting him for the second time, I had a dream. In the dream, I am standing in a tiny cement room, gray walls, gray floor. There's a woman to my left lying in a cot. And there's a man straight across from me in the dream. I looked at the woman, then I looked at the man. I said, what is this? And he said, well, she has inoperable cancer. And I said, what happened? And he said, she had severe itching under her arms and couldn't get to the doctor in time. End of dream. I didn't give it two seconds of thought until I was getting ready to meet him the next day. And I remembered the dream. So mm -hmm. I looked it up. I looked up severe itching under the arms. Three and a half hour lunch that day, learning more about one another. 
as we're walking to cars, I finally gathered up enough courage because he's a very large, intimidating man. I, I mustered up the courage and I said, hey, can we talk about your wife for a second? I had a dream. And he just looked at me and dreams are very important in Islam. I knew that. Mm. And he said, so tell me the dream. So I did. And I said, did she, did they discover the cancer due to severe itching under her arms? And he took a step backward in the parking lot and said, what is this? No one knew that detail except him, his wife, and their doctor. See, this is how God does, Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we pass over those things, when we start looking at these things, saying, well, that's just coincidence, or that's just mm. this, or just that, I have walked with God for too many years. I have been down too many roads to question. And so at a certain point in my life, instead of wondering, could that have been God? I now assume it is him. And it's got to be proven that it wasn't. I just flipped it a little bit. Yeah. He doesn't have to prove that it was him. I've got to prove that it wasn't him. Because it's him most of the time when I when those things happen. Wow. An interview that's going to go out soon uh, with a gentleman I think you know quite well called Carl Rice. And Oh, sure. What happened to him when they were in Morocco, I think it was, up in the mountains where there's plenty of snow. And they were involved in a massive snowstorm. And they were rescued because the local Muslim shepherd had a dream. You know, it's, it's insane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this he, this world is not what we think it is. This life is not what we think it is. And trust me when I tell you, God is not who we've been taught He is. Yeah, He's much better. Going back to your daughter, and then we will move on because I'm sure we've got so much to talk about on other subjects as well but then we'll see what happens you know sure let's just roll with it you said she's fine now which is great what gave yes. her the courage to talk to sisters knowing that mum and dad are going to find out even as a teenager her life was going a bit sideways at 14 and she trusted her sisters and her sisters in their wisdom just a few years older convinced her that we would be safe to share this information with. You know, I'm I'm grateful that she did. It healed some things in our relationship because I used to wonder why is she so angry at me mm. when she was a little girl? And she was angry because, Dad, don't you see what's happening to me? Why are you not protecting me, Dad? Why are you dropping me off here again, Dad? And so I carry that. I carry that. When I say there were mistakes made in the midst of this by me, I let that young man off the hook. I got him counseling. Wow. It wasn't my call to make. He should have been in prison. Sometimes I feel very equipped for this life, but most of the time I feel very unequipped. Wow. That's as, that's as honest as I can be. No, right. no. Great answer. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If your daughter came on today, what do you think she'd say about all this? I would hope that she would talk about the healing power that is available through Jesus, through family, through kindness, through forgiveness, because she's had to work through all of this. Mm. And the ability to let go of some of the trauma and some of the pain is uh it's key it's key when we look and think that people are our enemies or people are this or people are that you mentioned that i was involved in a book called a language of healing for yeah. a polarized nation she knows how to love today she knows how to love in a different way as she's gone forward on this path but i'm sure that even as she gets older just like with me i mean my gosh the stuff my you know my childhood could be one of those terrible, terrible lifetime movies. I know that things still come up for me, hmm. and I'm 66 years old. So she'll be dealing with this for, for a bit. But my goodness, she is a wonderful mom, a great wife, and she loves Jesus. Because it's so easy, and from you as a pastor as well at the time, 
to say, do you know what? I've had enough of this. Where were you in all the mist of this God? You know, <laughs> sure. Right. So how did you deal with it? And how did your daughter deal with it as well? Well, I think key in that is we don't run from the pain. You stay in it. We stay in it. I let myself experience things. And those things will either mark you. As I sit with people again, almost on a daily basis, those times are going to come. Her story is not unusual. My stories are not unusual. But they can either help us grow and create even more compassion in the way that we view others, or we can become bitter. There was a psychoanalyst in the turn of the century. He died in the 70s. His name was Eric Erickson. He was a contemporary of Freud's, and he came up with the eight stages of life. And to me, it's fascinating because stage seven, which is the next to last one, is from 45 to 65. It's a 20-year period. And based on what's happened before, you got two choices, generativity, which is moving forward and continuing to learn, or stagnation from 45 to 65. Mm. Most people choose stagnation. And oftentimes, pain is a catalyst to keep people stagnant. Yes. They get they get lost in it. And then stage eight, which is 65 on, is integrity or despair. I can tell you with certainty, most of my friends, most of my peers are in despair because of choices they made in their lives and the way things have gone. And they just said, I'm happy with my job. I'm happy with my life. Don't tell me. I don't want to know the truth if I don't already believe it. If I don't already know it, don't tell me. Yeah, I'm done. And then there are some who choose to continue to learn. I mean, I have fallen in love with mystery, Martin. I have fallen in love with the fact that God is someone that I can never fathom. And he is always surprising me. Wow. I was going to say, we haven't got time to do question five because we've run out of time. But it's not quite as bad as that yet. So when you're in the car park with Ahmad and... You know, you hit him right between the eyes with the dream and everything else like that. That's yes. one thing. But what actually did happen to his wife in the end, in light of what you shared? She died. She died. He looked at me when I shared the dream with him. And he said, are you telling me my wife is going to die? And I said, I think I might be telling you just the opposite. Would it be possible for me to come and pray for her? Well. Yeah, so that never did happen. I even went to the hospital when she was in intensive care at the end. I don't want to go too deep into that because no. it becomes very personal be- between Ahmad and I, and yeah, I don't yeah. want to uncover. But he is very happily remarried. He married a journalist from the Middle East that is fairly well known, and uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman who gave it all up to come to Bakersfield. And... I love him like my own brother. He's on this hand as far as friends. One of the top people I've ever known in my life. Wow. Yeah. There's an encouragement for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. I agree, 100%. Maybe come back to that later on if that's okay. Do you know, we've only done three questions so far. I know. <laughs> I know. Okay, let me give you a real short version. Let me just take them out. Outside of my family, my most enjoyable day out, Mm -hmm. I had a lunch about a dozen years ago with a man named Barry Maguire. Oh, Uh, no. What? What, the singer, Barry Maguire? Yes. Yeah, the singer, Barry Maguire, Eve of Destruction. He owes me 25 quid. He probably owes a lot of people 25 quid. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Carry on. (laughs) He graciously sat down, him and his wife, Mari, with me. In Bakersfield, he was here to see the monkeys in concert. Oh, because uh, Peter Tork was one of his dearest friends on the planet. Oh, wow! He gave me two and a half hours of his time. I wanted to do, I wanted to do a show with him where he did not sing, where he just sat and told stories about his life. Yeah, I had a picture in my mind of who he was because I, you know, I remember the days of Barry Maguire and the second chapter of Acts. I remember when he began to do Christian music, and uh, and it impacted me greatly as a young man. He wasn't the same person that I had seen in concerts so many times in my life. He began to very, with vulnerability, share his life with me. 
And I walked out of there frightened. <laughs> he grabbed me after two and a half hours, hugged me, kissed me on the cheek, told me he loved me. And I got in my car and thought, what in the world just happened to me? <laughs> because he challenged, he challenged everything for me. And I had to go home and look at those challenges uh, realistically and try to figure out what am I going to do with this information? Mm. And it set me on a path. Some people call it deconstruction. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's a proper term for me. Or the I, eve I would, of deconstruction. Just saying. The eve of deconstruction. <laughs> you don't believe we're on the eve of deconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, look at you, babe. Sorry. I had to say <laughs> it's. It had to be said. <laughs> so he set me on that path. I like to say that I've fallen more in love with mystery and I'm less certain of things than I used to be. My theology was perfect 20 years ago. <laughs> it, it was. I had an answer for everyone that would sit with me. And if I didn't have it, I made it up because the man <laughs> of God must always have an answer. <laughs> Until one day, Martin, honest to goodness, honest to goodness. And this is because of Barry. This is because of that time with Barry. Somebody asked me a question, a young person, and I felt panic sweep over me because I didn't know the answer. And so I looked at him and I said, well, let me be honest with you. I wonder about that too. And I thought, well, there you go. Everybody's going to know you're a fraud and a phony. Mm. This young man put his head down and smiled and he said, thank you for that. And I realized I don't have to have the answers. Exactly. I don't have to have the answers. Exactly. Uh, so these days, I've got way more questions than conclusions. And I, when I put my head on my pillow at night, it's with the assurance that I serve a God who is bigger and better than I can ever be. And then I, then I was ever taught. Yes. Ever. No more, no more limits, no more constraints. So... I finally decided that, you know, you, you alluded to some stuff at the beginning of sitting with Muslims, sitting with gay people, sitting with trans people, all the things that I am pleased and privileged to do. I took the limits off of who I was allowed to love, who I was allowed to spend time with. Yes. Tongues wag. There are things said about me <laughs> from those who were in my life once upon a time. I am seen as dangerous. I am seen as one who has fallen away. And yet, as I sit here with you, Martin, huh, my life with, with Jesus has never been more real than right now. Well, in a minute, I'm going to tear up the sheet of paper. <laughs> we, we are going to completely go off grid. Let's go. But before we do, let me just tell you why Barry Maguire owes me 25 quid. The, oh, yes. Right. In the 1970s, Radio 1 was the national pop station. And one of the famous DJs was a chap called Johnny Walker. Anyway, in the early 80s, mid 80s, he, he made himself down to Bristol and was doing the local commercial station. But he took his version of pop quiz with him. And so I phoned up on a Monday to go for it. And I won Monday's round. So I got five quid. Right. Tuesday whoever I was playing against, beat the person. Yeah, so I got through. Wednesday, same thing. Thursday, same thing. I was on for the jackpot on Friday, right? And it was like four all. And I had the last question. And if I got this right, then, you know, I was more or less guaranteed 25 quid. And the question was, who sang Eve of Destruction? I had <laughs> a memory blank. I could not think. I was going through the alphabet. And of course, time was out. And of course, the person I was playing against, he knew it was Barry Maguire. So when I go and join, there was only two Christian radio stations in the whole of the UK at the time. And I joined the first one, UCB. And I was in there. And the first day I was taken into a room where I had all the albums, the vinyl albums that they didn't know what to do with. Because by this time, right. it was going on to CD and mini disc and stuff. And the first album I pick out is Barry Maguire. <laughs> yeah. to this day he haunts you he does <laughs> i listen i've got stuff like that too i was one question away from going on a show called who wants to be a, a millionaire which years ago came from britain again which came from britain yeah. again yes so i had gone through all of their preliminary rounds and now it was i just had to answer a few questions put these words in order from the 
from the Declaration of Independence, put this, 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 this. And then it came down to a poet from the turn of the century named Edna St. Vincent Millay. Right. Martin, I got to tell you something. I'd never heard of her. Nope. I'd never heard of her. And they gave me all the names. I had to put them in order. And I got it wrong. It was the last question. And it kept me off the ding dong show. It hurt my heart. So I'm a little bitter towards female poets from the turn of the century, just like you are towards Barry Maguire. Yep. Yep. There you go. Let it be. Let it be. I share in your misery and your pain. And this is where we find out that that poet, in fact, is the mother of Barry Maguire. It will be something like that. <laughs> it's bound to happen. I can't. The, 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 listen to me. You ought to like have a podcast or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Question five, and then we're going to go off grid, all right? And you yep. hear me rustle away this paper. What has been your most embarrassing moment, please, good uh, sir? Yeah, I I have a lot. I mean, I peed my pants once on second base <laughs> when I was a kid. That was a big one. I farted once in the fourth grade and everybody turned and looked. If we hadn't moved that year to a different school district, my name would have been Bob Farter instead of Bob Prater. But in all honesty, when this book was getting ready to launch, A Language of Healing, mm-hmm. I had been Santa Claus for 11 straight years here in my city among the poorest. We have this place called Union Avenue. It's where all of the drug trafficking takes place, the human trafficking And so for 11 years, I led an army down Union Avenue, giving there are 200 children that live there in these motels and trailers. And and it is the most abject poverty you can imagine. And so, uh, boy, and God really shows up when we do these things. But my son-in-law called me. I love my son-in-law, Josh. And he said, hey, are you ever going to get serious about inviting the black churches into Union Avenue. And I said, hey, I, I defended myself. I got a book coming out, right? Hey, they're always welcome. And then I remembered that one of the things that I wrote was it's not enough to be open to them joining you. I had to be active to do it. Now, I played basketball in my city, Bakersfield, for 30 years. And so most of the time, I was the only person that looked like me among African-Americans. And so I have a lot of black friends, but I realized I didn't have a single person that I knew that pastored a predominantly black church. And so I had interviewed a local black leader, this dear woman named Arlena Waller. So I called her and invited her to lunch. I told her what my son-in-law had said, and I started to cry. And I said, I need to apologize to you for not pulling the chair out and then compelling you to come. I have done this thinking you're always welcome, but I haven't taken the extra step Mm. of being proactive. She began to weep. And uh, within five minutes, she had someone on the phone and we had some people with us of color for the very first time. Now, these days, We started attending a predominantly black church. And at that point, listen to me. This is insane, Martin. I have spent my life in churches. I have pastored churches. And I couldn't say that I had ever been in a predominantly black church in my entire life, even after this book came out. So we went, my wife and I. Then COVID hit. And we did things on Zoom and other places, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're meeting with people on, on Sundays. But Eventually, we found our way back to this church, and I sat with the pastor. We've only been there a few months. I sat with him just a few weeks ago. He said, so let me ask you, why? what drew you here? And I, I looked at him and said, at this point in my life, I am finding value in making myself uncomfortable. Does that make sense? He just put his head down. I said, this is the way, the way that I feel when I walk into your church, I can imagine is the way that people that look like you have felt entering my spaces all of these years. We're we're finding life and vibrancy in a place that we would have never looked years ago. So that's both my most embarrassing and redemptive moment. How's that? Well, it's really good. And 
your most embarrassing moment there, I can see why you're saying that now. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, I, I was a hypocrite. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was. I was. I wasn't being genuine in the way that I went after people. Yeah. It was like, oh, come on, you're always free to join us. But it's not enough. If somebody's looking for a seat at the table, I need to go find those people, compel them to first come to the table, and then pull out a chair. Yes. It's the best I got, Martin. Yes. Now, that is a modern-day parable. Little bit. Yeah, no, it is. Little bit. It is. Well, I think you've created a world record of these podcasts. It's taken us 40 minutes just to get through the first five questions. I think you've just beaten Paul and Fiona Jones on that one. That was fantastic. Oh, what they did as well. That, I listened to that podcast. Oh, so did you? Yay me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're now in the lead. That was just brilliant. Let it be. Let it be. <laughs> do you know what? I am going to go off grid here. But before we do, yes, just sir. to put everything into context then, I just said at the very beginning you were a, a pastor and then gave yes. it all up. Why did you give yes. it all up? Well, I don't know that I've really given it up because if you look at what a pastor really is, a pastor is someone that shepherds people. Mm -hmm. I still get to do that. I just don't do it in large groups anymore. When I walked away from the institution years ago, we facilitated in our home and we had up to 75 people in our home on Sunday mornings. But even that, I got tired of people <laughs> coming to my house, sitting down and staring at me like, what are we doing? Mm. I just don't like it. I like things to be organic. I like things to be a cooperative, like where everybody's involved. And I'm just not that smart. I'm not that guy that can sit there and it's not my thing. It's, it's just not my thing. So I love Jesus. I love people. Okay. I don't know anything other than that. Okay. Let's go off grid, right? Yes, paper. let's do it. What does off-grid Christianity mean to you then, Bob? Oh, boy. Stuff that is surprising, that to many within the grid does not make sense. Oh, and scary. Okay. Expand, please. When I tell you that as I have walked away and allowed myself to ask questions and love in a different manner than what I had been allowed to do, I became dangerous to many. I can tell you that there were times I would walk into a church meeting and I would see leaders in my in my city, Martin, suddenly look away and bury their, you know, like they're talking on the phone all of a sudden. Or I, I actually saw one man get up and walk out a side door when I walked in. Why? I'm trying hard not to cuss. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying hard. Yeah, so far, so good. Yeah. I grew tired of the minutia, the bull, if you will, the BS. Mm -hmm. I got tired of it. And uh, so much, so much of the world of the institution of Christianity is centered around control, keeping people in line, and oftentimes even scaring people into going along with your agendas. I had had enough. I saw things through a different lens. I mean, I just saw things through a different lens and I couldn't do it anymore. But that has come with some cost. Some of my dearest and closest friends over the last 20 years have stepped away. And I, I admit I can be a lot. You can tell probably from this podcast. I'm a lot. I'm that guy that has dreams. I'm that guy that sits with the transgendered. I'm that guy that sits with the Muslim. And I'm scary to those in leadership. Now, let me at their people, and they love me. Mm. That's the truth. As I sit with people, I have no shortage of people that want to sit down with me. None but not too many of them have reverend in front of their names. Okay. So why do people want to sit down with you? I think it's because they recognize that it's another person who's been down a journey, who's not going to bring judgment and who has learned to love. 
Yeah. I'm still learning. But with me, it's it's what you see is what you get. I mean, for real, I love deeply. I love completely. And that's a bit of a precious commodity on the earth today. Yes. Especially as it should be abundant in the world of Christianity. And the unfortunate reality is it's not. It's just not. One of the things that Barry Maguire did for me, he began to break down some things for me. Uh-huh that had happened to him over the years. And I was stunned, shocked, and scared. That's the triple S, by the way. Stunned, shocked, and scared. (laughs) But I was also challenged Yes. to begin to look through a slightly different lens. And it doesn't take much. I like to tell people that it's really not that hard. It's just a shift in the way we do. And it's just literally, I'm holding my hand right now straight Just shift it just that much, just a little bit, and you can see. You can see the pain. You can see the frustration, the misunderstanding. I'll tell you one more thing. This is a a short one. About 10 years ago, I woke up. There was a, a pastor in the city who was probably in my top two or three closest friends on the earth. We met every Friday for breakfast, and at 7 a.m. sharp. So this morning I got up at five and I started reading the oral history of Saturday Night Live. (laughs) I mean, what else are you going to do? It's five in the morning. You know, everybody's asleep. So I'm reading the oral history of Saturday Night Live and I am really getting into it. I'm enjoying it because I'm a big fan. Mm -hmm. And I realized there was a central character. His name was Lauren Michaels, Mm -hmm. is Lauren Michaels. And as I read, they they either loved or hated him, everyone that worked with him. But you cannot deny the man's genius. Tina Fey, Chevy Chase, uh, Will Ferrell, on and on and on. They all came through. And what he would do every summer during their offseason, he would travel to the highways and the byways of North America and find hidden gems that had been overlooked. He would invite them into his family for a season and then launch them into the earth and say, ta-da, Will Ferrell, ta-da, on and on, all these people. And I found myself being overwhelmed. And I said these words out loud, Lord, you want to know who I want to really be when I grow up? I want to be Lauren Michaels. I want to find those that are in the corners. I want to find those that are in the margins, those who have been forgotten, those who have been overlooked for whatever reason. I want to invite them into my family and then launch them into the earth and see what happens. And so I got so involved in that, I was five minutes late to breakfast. Five minutes. My friend texted me as I pulled into the parking lot. He said, you coming, Lipowitz? And I thought, you coming, Lipowitz? What in the world? So I walked in. I said, hey, I'm right here. So I told him about my time that I had reading and asking the Lord for something very specific. And uh, after about an hour, he said, I'm going to go to the restroom. And I said, all right, listen, I have to admit something to you. I don't know what movie this is from. What movie is this from? You come in Lipowitz. And he said, I don't know that it's from a movie. He said, it just seemed like a real funny name to call you. So he goes to the restroom. I grabbed my phone and Googled Lipowitz. Lauren Michaels came up because Lauren Michaels' real name is Lauren Michael Lipowitz. So you, you've got to be kidding me. I make this declaration before my God, my Father, Lord, this is who I want to be. And within 10 minutes, someone called me by the man's name. To this day, it's the most stunning prophetic moment of my life. The pastor looked at me and said, you have got to be kidding me. He said, I'm like a prophet with Tourette's syndrome. I don't even know what it is I'm saying. So what that tells me is God's heart resides under the bridges. God's heart resides on Union Avenue. God's heart resides in those places that we do our best to ignore. That's my takeaway from that. And if in some small way I get to be a person involved in that, mm. both hands are in the air, Martin. Both of my hands are in the air. Thank you. Hmm. Okay. 
where you're at now, this yes, sir. Okay, let's imagine that you know hindsight is a, a wonderful thing and everything else, but let's just imagine that right here, right now, we have the younger version of you coming to see you right now, and also your 14 year old daughter coming to see you right now. As you said, people come to see you because you know you're not marginalising people. They're coming here because they know you're going to speak truth and love and everything else like that. What right. would you say, first of all, to your former self when you first heard the news about the tragedy of what happened to your daughter? And then what would you say to your daughter? Because I just get a feeling that it'd be somewhat different to what you actually did. Oh, you have so no what- idea. Oh, that uh, Martin, seriously, you need to think about having a podcast. <laughs> I mean, that question is so brilliant on so many levels, and it's it's a deep one. Thank you. If I encountered myself as a young man, oh, I would say it's it's okay to fail, and it's okay to love yourself. It's okay to love yourself, and you can love those that you disagree with. Now, if my daughter came to me now, if I had a 14-year-old daughter and she came to me now, I would have supported my daughter better. I would support her. I would listen clearly. I would get her into counseling immediately, and we would immediately be at a police station. Because at that moment in time, all those years ago, I abandoned her for the sake of I don't even know what forsake of, Mm. but for the sake of appearing to be this man who forgives everybody and does these things, which was just a charade, it wasn't real. I spoke on behalf of even other, the moment he told me there were more than I can remember, more girls than I can remember. I should have been on the phone with the police immediately. I wasn't. So you asked me what I would do differently with her. I would completely support a full recovery for her and finding justice for her because I wasn't able to protect her when she was young. I didn't know what was going on. And so uh, not only did I not support her then, but when she told me I didn't support her, I got the man counseling for free. Oh, God. It's the greatest regret of my life. Why, though? Because to her detriment, I tried to find him some help Mm -hmm. rather than having him answer for the things that he had done, all based on a misguided notion of loyalty. His father was a pastor, someone I knew very dearly. And I made calls at that point that were not my calls to make, Martin. They were not my decisions to make, but I made them anyway. So I certainly wouldn't do that. So whatever the opposite of that is, I would hope that's what I'd do today. If we asked your daughter that same question, looking back on it, what do you think she would say from her perspective? I think she would say that she was very disappointed in her dad at that point. She loves me. Our relationship, when I tell you, I mean, we talk several times a week. I'm that guy that she'll call when she's driving, you know, hey, dad, just calling to say hi. So our relationship is as wonderful as any could imagine. Mm. But I think back then, Well, I don't have to think. I know. When she finally went into therapy years later, she wrote me a letter saying, why did you abandon me? Why didn't you help? And why did you try to find him help without getting me help? So, yeah, I don't, it's not conjecture. It's truth. It's what I did. And I take full responsibility for it. But, that's honesty as well isn't it from both sides from your side and her side oh my goodness yeah she had she had every right to come at me and when the light shines on you that bright there's nowhere to hide you either stand up and do what's right or you don't yeah 
I was yeah. I had already done the wrong things. So I wasn't going to do it again. So for those that are listening at the moment, you know, because we're getting more and more listeners every day now, which is a, an incredible answer to prayer. There might be a few people listening at the moment that are going through what your daughter, unfortunately, went through 30-odd years right. ago. Right. It might not be the same thing. It might be something different, but just as bad. Yes. What would you say to them? There's a time to seek justice. There's a time for things that have been hidden to come into the light. But guard your heart during the process, because these are the types of things that can tear people apart. My daughter is not bitter. My daughter loves well. I have learned a lot from her. When, when these things take place, I mean, my goodness, Martin, if I broke down some of the things that happened during my childhood, it's just, we have choices. We have those things that come. Mm -hmm. And there is a time to stand up and say enough and to be firm. And I've, my Gosh, I have done that more times than I can count over the years. But to do it with grace and to do it without malice, well, that's a bit of a trick. That's a bit of a trick. And one of the ways that I have learned is that understanding that everyone has a backstory. Everyone has a road that they came from. And those roads shape us whether they want to or not. When I was a kid, we lived on this 800-acre ranch in Roseburg, Oregon. It was a place where so many bad things happened. That The abuse was so insane at that place. We were the caretakers. And I did not know Jesus. Uh, my mom had started taking us to church against my stepfather's wishes. And there were times that he would beat her to keep us from going Listen, I'll just tell you, there was a time when I was 11 years old, I walked in, he had to, he had a gun to his head, ready to end it all because of all the things that he had done. And, and, and I'm not going to go into the litany of things, mm -hmm. but there were things and they were horrific to the point where the 12-year-old me went out into the middle of a field and gave his life to Satan. I didn't know what else to do. I said, listen, I will do what you want me to do. Just let me do what I want to do, which at that point in time was murder. I was torturing animals. I was setting fires. I would break the glass out of buildings just to hear it because it would send a rush through my body. If there had been any single adult paying attention, I would have been locked away. Mm -hmm. I did not find Jesus. He found me. He found me in the midst of all of the garbage. And so all these years later, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was with a friend of mine who happens to be a psychologist. And we're driving along. He's driving a pickup in the dream. And all of a sudden, I heard gravel under the tires. And I knew where we were. I turned to him. I said, hey, hey, where are we? And he smiled. He said, relax. This is going to be good for you. The next thing I know, we pulled around a corner where the house used to be. And the house was gone in the dream. Instead, there were houses everywhere. And young couples, young families, the sun was going down over the ridge. They had put lights in the trees. They had tables set up with food. And I saw a young mother with children putting food on a table. And I walked up to her in the dream and I said, hey, I used to live here. And she said, well, I don't know anything about that. She smiled at me. I don't know anything about that, but we're having a party. Why don't you join us? Immediately, I was awake immediately, Martin. And it was 2.22 in the morning. The number two in scripture is really interesting. It's almost always used to show the differences between things like day and night, hot and cold. Mm -hmm. It's almost always to show. And I heard the Lord very clearly. It was old and new. He said, hey, Bob, I know that you often see yourself as that confused and angry little boy. I know you still see yourself that way, but you need to know something, Bob. I don't see you that way. As a matter of fact, I'm throwing a party for you in the very place where it happened. Bob, do you not see? These are the things that shape me. These are the things 
that shape me and they inform how I live my life and how I get to do and who I get to be. That's why I can tell you a certainty. I'm going to meet Bono someday. And I have this feeling we're going to work together. Wow. Because I heard something once. <laughs> I won't ask why, because you can tell me that when we uh, do another sure. podcast on it <laughs> after, after the event, which would be great. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'll yeah. let you know. Thank you. I'll keep you posted. Thank you. So of Greek Christianity, okay, you've yes. been mentioned about institutions. Yep. A few that might be going through what your daughter and yourself have gone through that you shared, who are yep. obviously scared of the institution, but know that the institution, they are part of it, as in church or whatever. What can they actually do, though, to bring it all out? What would you say to them now? There's a word that is not used as frequently as it should. And that word is courage. Mm -hmm. Be of good courage. We see that in scripture. Be of good courage. Be courageous. That, that would be my advice. Be courageous. Stare what happened to you right in the face and begin to find courage to do what needs to be done. The institution, listen, it is insidious in the way that it worms its way into an authority position within our lives. And I think churches should be able to speak into our lives. Of course they should. But unfortunately, these things have been used over the years to control people and to keep them in line. Find courage. That's what I would tell people. Find courage. And then I would tell them, if you've been down some similar roads and you want somebody to talk to, huh, get at me. I'll Zoom with you. I'll spend time with you. I pr that That's an absolute promise. Brilliant. Well, in that case, then, people better get a sheet of paper. Perhaps right at the very end, you can give an email address or a way sure. they can contact you. That's okay. Of course. Thank of you. course. Thank you. Off-grid Christianity, as I said, those are disillusioned uh, right at the very beginning. You could obviously write a book on that, I would have thought. Let's talk a <laughs> bit more about your book, if that's all right, and The Polarized sure. Nation. What's it all about, please? I had an idea for years to do a book called The Language of Agreement. I saw something in the Tower of Babel story. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the story, Martin? I was going to be very pedantic and say the Tower of Babel story, but I don't know the Tower of Babel story now. <laughs> that is very pedantic of you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I was struck years ago by, as they were building the tower, the Lord saying, when they speak a common language nothing will be impossible for them. And so we know the story. He scatters them, confuses their language, but they were building a tower from earth to heaven. Mm -hmm. What if we were to do like Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven, and we were to build a tower from heaven to earth and begin to speak a common language? Does the same rule apply? Nothing shall be impossible for them. That's what I see. And so I wanted to take that and explore a book about agreement. When I took it to Wayne Jacobson, my dear friend and collaborator on The Shack, he said, well, what does that mean? And I couldn't answer him. So we ended up with a language of healing. There were thoughts about making it for a polarized world or, you know, whatever. But we decided to focus on what we know best, which is right here in America. And uh, the book came out three years after the most contentious election of my lifetime, when Donald Trump was elected. And I'm not really wanting to get off into politics no, much. No, no. Yeah, but we wanted people to have a pathway to be able to speak to those with whom they had been uncomfortable because of differences in the way that they viewed the world or the way they viewed politics or the way they viewed anything. We wanted to give them a bit of a roadmap. My initial thought was to make it just like a language course. If you if you learn Spanish or French, mm. you have steps to follow to learn a language of healing. And so from there, we just went forward. We were looking for a third author, and we finally settled on Arnita Willis-Taylor, who is in Dallas, Texas, and a Black woman. She brought a perspective to us that completely shifted the book and from my perspective, made it about a million times better than it would have been. Because we were going to write out of our own bubbles. 
Yeah. She wouldn't let us do that. So that's what that is. It's a roadmap. We celebrate Thanksgiving over here. Mm-hmm. Those family functions, it's a roadmap for Thanksgiving when, you know, Uncle John visits and always has those crazy ideas. And the book is called again, sir? A Language of Healing for a Polarized Nation. And is it available at all good bookshops near you? Everywhere. Plug it in. You'll find it. Brilliant. Well, look at the time. It's ah! <laughs> there was so much we had to discuss, or I wanted to discuss, and we haven't got anywhere near it. As I said nope. right at the very beginning, you know, we'll just see where this goes. Right. I never thought we'd go there. Bob Prater, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. I'd like to now come to the final question, if that's okay. And come on. Who is your Christian hero? And when I say this, I say this every time. It has to be somebody that's dead and not in the Bible. Obviously, the reason why I say dead is that just in case, you know, a few years' time, you choose someone that's uh, really well-known, and then all the dirt, all the filth comes out, and it's like, whoa. So Right. So consequently, who have you chosen? Bob Prater, who is your Christian hero, please, sir? He is a man named Fred Rogers, known around the world as Mr. Rogers. Yes. Now, I, I missed him because I was a little bit older when, when he hit the airwaves, but my children... My children certainly knew who he was, and I poo-pooed him all the way through. I did not even, I didn't, I, I thought he was kind of a mamby-pamby guy. Well, nothing could have been further from the truth. My goodness, he heard about black children not being allowed to swim in a swimming pool in the 60s. They poured acid in the pool to keep them out. What? And he didn't deal with that stuff on the air. He didn't talk about it, but instead he had a man who was black who played a police officer on his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the very next episode, here comes Officer, I think Officer Friendly was the guy's name, walking into the frame. And there's Fred Rogers with his feet in a waiting pool, a children's waiting pool. And he said, Hello, Officer Friendly. Why don't you take your shoes and socks off? It's a really warm day. It's really refreshing in the water. Come and join me. So a white man and a black man putting their feet in water together. Something about that picture just makes my heart happy. Yeah. He was an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church, a minister of entertainment. And he broke every barrier. And if you want to know who my real hero in life is, dead or alive, that's the guy. There'd be a book of Fred if he lived during Bible times. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you've chosen someone that hardly anybody until a film by Tom Hanks came out a couple of years ago. In this country, in the UK, we'd never heard of Fred Rogers. Whoa. Well, that's a shame. The reason being is, I suppose in the 60s, when he was doing his children's TV shows, you know, we had our own sort of TV shows over here. So do yeah. we need to import that as a thing? You know, just little yeah. did we realize that round the corner was Barney the Dinosaur. And <laughs> <laughs> if you ever come to my home, Martin, you will see. I have posters of Fred Rogers on the walls. I have a corner that is filled with memorabilia. Wow. Uh, because his life, if there's anybody I want to emulate, it's that man. I want to be gentle. I want to love well. And kindness becomes everything. Well, we hire a film uh, through the post on DVD because I'm an old fogey. I like my analog, better sound, better picture and everything else like that. And <laughs> when the film came out, I think it's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, I think the film yes. called. Uh, yes. With, with Tom Hanks. My wife, she voted that as a film of the year because it is just brilliant. Yes. There's a true story as well that you can yes. just talk into people. And I believe there's a story uh, that later on in life, he was on a tube subway thing, whatever, in New York. Yes. Do you know the story I'm going to talk about? I do, but tell no, it. No, you tell it because I might probably get it. Oh, wrong. he was such a beloved figure, and he was heading to some kind of a taping. He got on the, you call it the tube, we call it the subway, and there were people on the subway that began to sing, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and uh, which was the song that he would end every show with. And uh, he was mobbed by children. You can tell when someone's genuine. Mm. 
you can tell when someone is less than genuine. He was the absolute real deal. And the closest to Jesus that I, the very fact that they showed something in that film with Tom Hanks, where he uh, is near someone who's dying and he asks them to pray for him while they're on their deathbed. Would you pray for me? And his friends looked at him and said, why would you do that? And he said, people who are going down roads of pain, people who are dying, he said, I just happen to think they might be closer to heaven. So I'd like them to pray for me. And uh, those things resonate with me. It might be one of the reasons I chase after the broken, the wounded, the misunderstood. But he is certainly my inspiration. Yeah. You're the second person to have chosen Fred. So <gasps> in the series, that's a wonderful Look at me. choice. Wonderful choice. Good. Thank you very much, Steve, for that. For those that have rushed off and come back with a sheet of paper, how can they get hold of you in light of what you've been sharing today, please, sir? You can find me on Facebook. It's Bob Prater, P-R-A-T-E-R. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find there. By the way, on Twitter, I am Mr. Rogers. No, really? <laughs> I speak to politicians. I speak to famous people and encourage them to be kinder and better and then I just encourage people, although now that Elon Musk has taken over, I'm not there as often. But if you really want to get at me, people, you can reach me by email. It is rprater, that's R-P-R-A-T-E-R, -E at B-A-K, B as in boy, dot R-R, dot com. Is that set up by the pirates, by chance? rr.com <laughs> that's it you see you can do it you can do it wow i never thought it would go this far uh <laughs> i appreciate you martin i thank appreciate you so much you. been a, thank a, you. an amazing podcast thank you so much and yes we'll have to hopefully get you back again sometime soon thank you so much for your time let soon. it be come and get me cheers all right you. cheers god bless thanks bye.